Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Well, that's a nice idea. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be, um, yes, as always, with a special guest. And this week, it is going to be the turn of the Bambi Slam, because I spoke to Roy Feldon, guitarist, vocalist, songwriter, and the creative genius behind this band, and much, much more. So, um, I've got that interview, which I conducted very recently. He was in Berlin, I was in Norwich. It all worked terribly well. But to get the party rolling, I think we'll have a track and then the interview. This is going to be your favourite and mine. And yes, it's that single that we all loved, Don't It Make You Feel. We got very excited when John Peel played that. I went out and even bought the single. That was the Bambi Salam and the track titled Don't It Make You Feel that came out in 1987 on Product Records. 
87, a fine year for music. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Um, a little bit later on, or towards the end of the show, I will give you the contact details, because it's always nice to get your messages, and also to tell you that uh, I've been podcasting all these uh, interviews that I've done over the last three years. So I've built up a huge collection of indie interviews from that golden decade. But this is, uh, yes, I caught up with the main man from the Bambi Slam, Roy Felden, very recently, he was in Berlin. I probably said that. I wasn't, but that doesn't matter. It's technology at its best. But anyway, after a short, hello, who are you, kind of conversation, um, yes, we got down to the nitty-gritty, and um, and I sort of asked one of those interesting questions to get the ball rolling um, about these sort of the early years, and also to mention that I did buy that single after hearing it on John Peel. And this was uh, Roy's response. Roy? It's over to you now. Did we? I wasn't aware of that. But I, I noticed recently that there was the uh, the John Peel session that we did. And I really, I remember recording it a bit, but um, I don't remember doing those songs. And someone posted it. And, and it, it, have you heard that, the, the John Peel Grammy Slam one? No. No, I haven't, actually. I just kind of, um, yeah, I must go and have a look, actually. Because there isn't a huge amount about the band. And, and yet, you know, for a, for a, that kind of glorious period that it was really happening. So is it possible to sort of give a bit of an idea of your own kind of musical background and, and how that developed? Yeah, so are we recording it now? Or are we doing yes, it that, that would Yes, I hit record, actually, because that would be oh. a disaster. Yeah, so what about yourself? Because I'm, you know, to, without giving too much away, I'm in my mid-50s. So I was just wondering if you're a sort of sort of born in the mid-60s or early 60s? Yeah, late 60s. Thanks a lot, David. <laughs> um, no, uh, yeah, and I grew. I was born in England, but I grew up in Canada. So to quote Neil Young, all my changes were there. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, you know, skateboarded and stuff, and I loved music, but, you know, the classic punk rock story. I mean, I looked at, like, you know, Jimi Hendrix and David Bowie and Mick Jagger and thought, geez, I, I, I can't do that. You know what I mean? But then, you know, you saw the Pistols and the Clash and the Ramones. You're like, well, I could do that. It's a famous story, you know? Yes, absolutely. So when you were sort of hitting that teen period during the 70s, because I was obviously, you know, I was kind of a bit into that kind of, I suppose, quite young, listening to watching Top of the Pops, watching, you know, those kind of glam bands like, you know, The Sweet and Gary Glitter. And then, you know, had my David Bowie moment when I saw Space Oddity and thought, that was my first single and, and was obsessed. But then my older brother, who was into prog rock, you know, kind of introduced me to that kind of, yes, Genesis, heavy metal stuff. I never, you know, I never played music, but what was your own sort of those early kind of teen years that, that you were sort of being influenced by music? Well, way before that, I was influenced by music. I remember, like, my dad's British and my mum's German, and we, my dad listened to classic music, and both my parents, I guess, they weren't, like, artistic people, you know what I mean? And, you know, we had one Fats Domino cassette in the car that we all agreed upon. And really, that's, to me, the beginning of learning, you know, to write great songs is Fats Domino. He didn't write a lot. He do You Win Again by, like, you know, Hank Williams and stuff like that. But those simple, 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 you know, Hank Williams three chord songs where you switch the chords around the middle eight. It's like that was the beginning. And then my sister and, you know, it's funny that because because I have this story of your first album and I got so lucky. Natalie, who ended up playing bass in the Bambi Slam, she was my next door neighbor across the street. She's one year older than me. And she was a twin, but not identical twin. And she had four older brothers. So we used to hang around. They lived right across the street from us. We would hang around at their place all the time. And I loved the harmonica. And when I was nine, 
I heard this harmonica song. I was like, what is that? Because my sister had like hot rocks by the Rolling Stones. So I learned to play Midnight Rambler and stuff on the, on the uh, harmonica. But then I heard this song. I was like, what is that? And it was The Wizard by Black Sabbath. So I, I, I said to my mom for my ninth birthday, mom, you got to get me this record. It's got a witch on the cover. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what Black Sabbath was. I just knew I loved the harmonica from The Wizard. And uh, so the older kids across the street, the four brothers of Natalie, they, you know, had great musical taste they were all real like you know you know not pothead sort of like hoser wayne's world kids they were sort of like you know intellectual artistic kind of guys as well as being working class sort of blue collar family people but they had amazing record collections and i would just you know like like you hear about many musicians and people that just love music go over to their place and we would just voraciously go through all of their records because they you know we were nine ten and they had money they were 14 15 16 had records yeah so what I want to say about the Top of the Pops thing, having lived in England for five years during that Bambi Slam period uh, and knowing now with YouTube and everything, we really missed that. Like in Canada, we had a show called The New Music, which was great. I remember that's why I first saw The Clash in 1978. It's, it's funny uh, because, you know, The Clash and The Pistols, they came through through The New Music because it was British, but it just goes to show how, you know, fucked the Ramones were by Warner Brothers too. It's like they... Uh, they didn't, I, I didn't hear of them until 1979 when I was 14, the day I met the Ramones. And then, then there was full on go time after that. Yes. Well then, so look, where, so where were you, when, when did you come to the UK then to start living? When I was 19, 20, I'd come to America. Right. And, and I lived in Los Angeles as I got jobs and stuff, but I really didn't know what I was doing at 18, 19. And, uh, you know, I didn't have a social security number. I couldn't work there. And I didn't know, I didn't know how to, you know, manipulate it or whatever. So I just, so I'd get a job and then they'd say, oh, your social security number isn't right. And I'd say, yeah, I just made it up. I'm from Canada. They said, oh, well, we can't hire you, you know? And, uh, and so I realized I can't do that because I was born in England. I thought, okay, well, I'll go to England because, you know, later on Canada, you could, you could, you know, have a career in Canada with Canadian content on the, uh, on the radio. And, you know, uh, but back then it's like before, you know, the nineties, you couldn't really be in Canada. I mean, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, they also had to leave, you know what I mean? It's like, you couldn't be in Canada and be anything else than the sort of Canadian band, you know? Yeah. It's well quiet. And then, so then you, you sort of hit, because, because I've got indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which is basically the years of the Smiths. So were you then in the UK during that period of a sort of the post-punk period? No, I got there, I got there 86. 86? Like six, six months or nine months later, we were on mute. It's crazy. It's like, back to, so I came there, I was like 19 or 20. I'd been a flight attendant in Saudi Arabia for six months to save up to move to England. And I, you know... I'd say very little money. I think it was a thousand quid. It's a whole, I, I almost could make a movie out of it. It was so bizarre and lucky, but I actually got that. I thought I got enough money to like survive for a month. I'm going to have to get a room, you know, and look on the standard. This is before the internet, right? You have to hit the ground running, you know, stay on someone's couch for a couple of days and try to find a room on, on in the standard or, you know, in a wantage, you know? Yeah. And so, and then I went to this guy, Nick Smash, who wrote this article for this thing in Toronto called Now Magazine, I think it was called. And it was sort of like the timeout. Yeah. Of, it was more like the Village Voice, the LA Weekly. It was uh, a free weekly that had all the movie reviews, restaurants and bands and stuff like that, you know. And he had this thing called Live from London. And he, you know, at that time was, you know, reporting on the Jesus and Mary chain. I came just after the Jesus and Mary chain sort of broke. And uh, 
he wrote this article and he had his address and he said, you know, if you've got any questions, write them to Nick Smash, you know, Clerkenwell Road, Camberwell. So I just took that address and knocked on his door when I got to England. And he, he you know, opened the door. And I said, yeah, you Nick Smash. And I said, yeah, I'm from Toronto. I just came here. And he said, well, you know, that's for writing to me. You're not supposed to show up at my door. I was like, yeah, whatever. So then he brings me in his place. We became friends. And I looked at his place like, wow, how much is this? They had like three floors. He lived, he was in the Dave Howard Singers. Do you remember Dave Howard Singers? Dave Howard, no. Well, they were sort of like a sort of Nash slash a guy with a keyboard. Uh, you know, doing sort of like, you know, uh, taxi driver music, Robert De Niro was just sort of, anyways, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dave Howard singers. And so he said to me, oh, well, we don't pay any rent. This is a squat. And I went, what? And, and then he explained what squatting was. I said, well, this is very interesting. You know, having been like a blue collar kid working to save up to like, you know, buy the four track and buy guitars and buy my plane ticket to England, you know, I was like, oh, but this is, could be very helpful. So Long story short, he tells me where, you know, and I, oh, yeah, but I was so, so embarrassing when you're young. I was like, well, I'm from Toronto. You know, till I find a place, couldn't I just stay here with you? You got so many rooms, you know what I mean? Like you think of someone saying that you don't even know, hey, just let me live for you a bit. But I was so naive. I was like, well, we're from Toronto. You know, help a brother out. But they directed me to the squat, the snow office on, on a, uh, Old Kent Road, the squatting network of Walworth. And, uh, on my way to that squatting office the next day with this roommate guy I had, this guy I met at a, a, a room viewing, um, and this is way too much detail, but it's it's really hilarious. I met this guy at a room viewing, and he had an enemy under his arm, and I said, hey, you know, we're looking for rooms, you know, um, have you heard of this thing squatting? And he sort of was a posh sort of kid. He says, well, I don't need to squat. I've got quite enough money. And I said, well, me too, you know. And he says, well, how much? I was like, I saved up a thousand bucks. That was all I had. That was a lot of money to me. You know, he's like, I've got considerably more. Well, I'll jump the story around. I lived with that guy for like four years. He never bought toilet paper or a light bulb once in the squat. And then when we moved out, I found out that before we moved into the squat, he'd inherited 750,000 pounds. He was some rich kid from Guilford. And it just goes to show, you know, it's like, <laughs> and he said, well, I didn't want you to take advantage of me, you know, him being rich when we lived with him. We said, yeah, well, you took advantage of us, you cheap bastard. Anyway, on our way to the squatting network of Walworth office, we saw these buildings at the edge of Burgess Park, you know where that is on on, the, on Old Kent Road by yes. the fire station? Yeah, there was seven houses left. Anyway, we ended up moving into one of those, lived there four years. Do you remember the band, The Levelers? Not the big levelers. These guys, look it up later, they had this great song, Cornish Rural Folk Art. It was really great. They were they were before that other big sort of like, I don't know what kind of folk, heavy level Folk band. punk, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that's... that's uh, that's how I came to England, got a squat. And that's really, I often say, you know, people ask why is British music much better than American music for the most part? It's because, you know, the Gallagher brothers, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, us, we didn't have anything else to do but make music. We had no money, so it's not like we were partying and drinking and having fun. And it's like, well, it was great, though. You know, it's like, well, you, you really concentrate on music. If you're, I've been there. If you're a band in L.A. or New York, you have to have a full-time job 40 hours a week, and then you have to have a rehearsal room that you guys all have to chip in on. you got to find time to rehearse a couple times a week. You know what I mean? It's 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 a nightmare. But when you're living in a squad or you're on the dole or whatever in council housing, you've got your whole life to just put into the music it's going to end up being better i think or different you know well absolutely so look then how did you so look you're there you're in the squat but you haven't got a band then when do you decide you're going to be a band and and how do you get the other three members so 
this is magic. It's like my next door neighbor, Nick, in the squad had played drums. He was an art major and a metal sculptor and a very, uh, he worked for some, uh, anyways, he's a very successful uh, guy and now a teacher. And and he, you know, was just my friend. And he said, well, I played the drums when I was 14. So it took about four months till his dad came down, his stepdad came down from wherever his mom and them lived with his drums. And he hadn't played since he was 14, he was maybe 24 then. And he really didn't know how to play the drums, but it was like, you know, that's the way. And then I phoned my old friend, Natalie, who, you know, lived across the street from me and was friends my whole life since I was five. And I said, Natalie, you should come over here, you know, learn how to play bass. And, uh, uh, you know, we got a free place to live, blah, blah, blah. So she did. And our songs, you know, were, were very simple. And not that, you know, that, that Natalie, Natalie picked it up very quickly. You know, I, I was the same, you know, anyways. And then... So that was just like luck, magic stuff. But then I went to the Royal Academy and again, when you're just young and naive, you know, and I just went, I thought, well, where am I going to find a cello player? And there was no internet then. I just went to the Royal Academy and I put a sign up there saying, you know, rock group looking for cello player. And Linda was the only one that answered. And she was like a real, you know, top 10. That's, you know, why we ended up uh, uh, losing Linda because she got you accepted to this very prestigious master's cello program, you know, and she couldn't, you know, give it up for being in a, a middling pop group or whatever. So, yeah, so she answered it. And it just goes to show who Linda was because she was so good that she thought, well, she's really trying to become, you know, an amazing cello player. And she's so disciplined. She thought, you know, everybody else at the, at the Royal Academy is doing the Royal Academy stuff. And she's going to branch out and do everything she can to, to be better. And yeah. so that's why she ended up playing with us. So look, that's quite an interesting combo because normally in the old-fashioned way that people are still doing it like Oasis, you know, you have a drum, bass, guitar, vocal, but not normally go, we need a cello player if we're going to be a bit thrashy. Well, you know, the Velvets and then people you mentioned earlier, I was around the same time as you, but I was in Canada for the Smiths and for, to me, even more than the Smiths, Echo and the Bunnymen. I loved Echo and the Bunnymen, you know, and that, 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 that whole period of the psychedelic furs, people sort of, you know, not in our world, but people sort of forget about the psychedelic furs. I think it's just like pretty and pink, but that whole first album with uh, Sister and Indian and all that shit on it. That's amazing. I love the psychedelic furs. So it was like that. That's what I realized exactly what I was doing. I was doing Echo and the Bunnymen and the psychedelic furs, but mixed with Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and the Sex Pistols and the Clash, those three things. And it's it's like so apparent to me, but, you know. Yeah, well, absolutely, because cause, cause I haven't done this show for nearly three years. Most people have this five-year narrative. You know, they get together, they make a bit of sound. Then if John Peel pl- plays the single, then a session, that sort of bounces them to that first album. Things are going generally well. The, the second album, not so good. And if anybody ever tours America, disaster, they come back and they're broken. So how, did, how long did it take for you to, you know, from that first meeting with the four of you, playing to to thinking actually we got something that's quite special we could even send this you know single to John Peel I just wondered how long that took for you to because you know having interviewed quite a few bands you know like um, Fast Eddie for Motorhead I remember him saying you know they would sort of play in and everything we're not going anywhere but we'll give it one more shot and if we don't if if it doesn't work let's just forget it and it just managed to work but it did take them for quite a while before they got that sound i just wondered what it was with you know the bambi slam well this this is where it it gets uh it gets uh, complicated because now when later on when i had a, a, like a, a i don't want to say like a real band but a real band in los angeles i had that let's up an experience of when we first 
played the first song after we looked at each other. And you hear you know, that famous Led Zeppelin story the first time they got in the room. And we were just like, wow, we got something here. But see, the Bambi Slam wasn't like that. It's like I had these demos that I'd made on my four track. And that's what Ron Rom from Sounds first. He had this, I think it was called Buzzing Bees, where he uh, uh, critiqued demos that bands sent in. You know what I mean? So sort of like the singles review, album review. But demos, it was a really great idea, actually. And I think that we happened to be the first ones that uh, were on it. And he gave us this glowing review of songs that were later on the Warner Brothers record uh, of these four tracks I did. And so really, the live sound in the room was nothing like the records because the records were all drum machines and samples. And uh, so live, we sounded nothing like that. And that's, that, that later on became a problem, like when we were opening for the cult. It's like I was thinking about this earlier. It's like... And uh, that's why the, the band changed lineups in its, in its time over many, many years, many different sort of people, because we made these records and we played live. We sounded nothing like them. And that wasn't a problem so much. It's just I remember Seymour Stein saying to me, you guys are great, but you can't play. And uh, what, what was the other thing that, uh, yeah, me and Nick, after we opened for the cult at the Hammersmith Odeon, uh, the guy at Mute who'd signed us, uh, he showed us video, you know, we were all drunk. We played it. We thought it went over great. And me and Nick, actually, we cried. We were like, oh, my God, we are so bad. This is so embarrassing. And then we, you know, had to figure out what we we're going to do about that. But at the beginning, it's like the records are totally a different thing. You know, I made the records and Linda played cello on them. Uh, but, you know, she's a classical cello player so not like i'm trying to take credit for it all it's like i in the beginning i put on the records that you know like all the people that played live is the people you know the record because no one really cares so you don't know is if the record's good the record's good no one and i, and I wish that, that we could have played live but we tried that when we first you know when we first were on mute we went to record down at sawmills that great studio and you know it just it just we weren't good enough as a like a, a musicians to do that so i had to program the drums and like put samples but that was also the beginning of you know samples it wasn't just like the mary chain that i think they just besides the loops on like upside down or something the later on records it was just like drum machine sounds but i used samples and i remember we got banned from the john peel sessions because you're supposed to do them in one day and it took us two because we had to sync up all of the like back then it was so hard you know you'd have a drum machine just going like but then you'd put and put some drum samples, you know, on them. But that was so hard. You had to flip the tape and delay it. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, God, so much time wasted doing that. But anyway. Yeah. So, so that pretty much wraps it all up. We well, went from the beginning to the end. Well, no, but then, but but, but going to the beginning, you, you did a John Peel session in 87, didn't you? Produced by the one and only Dale Griffith. And that, that featured those three tracks, La La La. Shame, shame of a sick, a sick, sad psycho, and the awful flute song. So you, you did manage to sort of get some John Peel session going. Well, that was the one we got. After that, we got banned from doing them because we took two days. Um, but see, so did you? Did you just look that up on YouTube now? I just actually googled that one. <laughs> yeah, no, because you said you didn't know about the thing, and so yeah, that. And I listened back to that, and like I say, I I do remember the difficulty with the samples, and I do. There's another song I thought too, an acoustic one, but. Uh, I remember doing that, but I, did, I really thought we did different songs. But I must say, for two days, oh, my God, my the records took me so long because of those fucking drum machines. But when I think I did that in two days, that's like a third of an album. If I could, That would have taken me six days to do an album if I kept that pace of those three records, you know, a day with the John Peel thing. 
Yes. Well, you, that would have been amazing. So look, you put out that single, Don't, Don't It Make You Feel, and that was on product records in 87, which I put down as the best year of music ever, because if you look at the releases, that was pretty amazing that year. I mean, did that, when that came out and, and people like me went and bought it, did it, actually, how many did it sell? Because it was quite, you know, it did hit sort of the, the airwaves, didn't it? Well, I don't know about that, but you know, in Britain, like, you know, even people, the Mary Chain complained about it. It's like, you know, you had daytime, you know, this like a nighttime BBC and, you know, where we, it wasn't like, you know, in K-Rock or modern, you know, MTV back in the day where, you know, you get played multiple times a day. It's like, no, if you if getting played in England meant you get played, you know, once on John Peel or Janice Long and that would be it. Maybe they'd play you another time. They got new records coming out. You know what I mean? It'd be one or two plays, you know, and that, and that would be it. But Don't Make You Feel wasn't the first single. The first single was Bamp Bamp. That was the first single on Product Inc. Mute. Right. And that was the one. And that, that to me, well, that, 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 that to me is a lot better. The thing that's funny about that is that there's a video for that and no one can find it. And it's such a shame because all of the videos are kind of shitty 80s cheap videos that we did. You know what I mean? It's like uh, it would have been much easier to just use little home video cameras or iPhones like you can now and have that. But then it was like, you know, you had to like even for like two, three, five, whatever grand, our videos weren't expensive, but it was proper cameras, you know what I mean? And, and, and it's like, and all those videos, but the Bam Bam one, the first one we did, I really love that video and no one can find it. Even I know the guy that put on a TV show, uh, he, he doesn't have it either. Uh, but yeah, but there's, there's not a lot of, it's so funny. Like there's no live footage of us at all. Oh God. That's such a shame. So look, then the album came out next year on Warner Music. So you obviously things had jumped quite a bit there because to go from a, a, a small little indie label to Warner's must have been quite something. Well, no, we were we were on mute. And this is the thing I'd like to clear up for people, too. It wasn't like we were trying to be on a major label. We were on Product Inc. Mute and we put out three singles and that was turned into like the Is EP on Rough Trade in America. Uh, I think it was like seven songs or whatever it was, the first three singles and B-sides. And then we finished the album and it was great. And I did a, I, I did a fucked up move and Daniel at Mute was right and gave me the best advice. I realized since then that obviously hearing from me talking, I'm a bit OCD and stuff. And I just couldn't let it go. I was like, I would lie in bed and I go, oh man, that fucking hi-hat's all, it's all fucked up and I have to change it. You know what I mean? And Daniel gave me the best advice. He said, you know, Roy, just put that on the next record, you know, put what you want to do. This record's great. Everybody loves it. And that's what I made a big mistake. I should have just put that out on mute the way it was and put my next ideas and thoughts into the next record, you know, but I didn't. And I, I, I said, well, you know, so they didn't want to give me any more money to finish the record and change it, which they were right not to. I was stupid. But then uh, Jeff at Rough Trade said, OK, you know, I'm interested. So then he took it on and then I spent more money and made the record different but it's like the first one danny was right i should just put that out and done the way that i was doing things on the second record so it wasn't so much like a leap it was just a weird thing that i i i felt that i wanted to like let's just say remix the record and 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 uh uh and mute didn't want to and like i said danny was right and and then i did and it was it was stupid i should have put that one out and just kept moving and stayed on mute you know yes so then did that mean it was the end of the band after that well, no, I mean, I still, that's the thing. It's like the band didn't play on the record. So it's like uh, uh, what I should have done now thinking back. It's it's like been so many years, you know, it's like I should have just like the Sisters of Mercy, uh, you know, 
who are managers, co-managers with a Boyd who was their manager, they, you know, I should have just played with the backing tracks and get this time the Beastie Boys and Run DMC was already out. You know what I mean? It's like it would have just been, you know, uh, uh, a thing where in the same way that the Mary Chain, you know, they never sounded like they sound on Psycho Candy Live because they're all using drum machines in those loops, you know, and it's yeah. like it's it's like they you know but but they but they sound great live it's just a different thing you know and, and the thing about real like drummers and bands is like it's such a magical thing when you you know are, are having drummers move in and out or if you got session drummers yeah they can play it but every drummer's got their feel and that's you know the magic the difference between you know fucking Hal Blaine or Ringo or whatever you know yes so then so, so just to sort of, because uh, the narrative is quite tricky. So that album dis- doesn't feature Linda, Natalie, Nick. It was mostly you and the backing, vo- uh, backing machine. All the records are me doing the drum machines and the bass and all the guitars. And then Linda is playing the cello parts I wrote, because like I said, I, I started to say that she's a classical musician. Yeah. She can't improvise, you know, she needs to have music written. You know, we I'm just jamming and, and just say, well, just play whatever you want. It's so interesting. And she'd be like, I can't, I can't. I need to, you know, know what to play. And so, you know, so, yeah, on the first single, every single record has drum machines, except for the awful flute song where... Nick played the drums at the end of that. Yes. And then And then and then on the album they're there too. They're doing backup vocals. And yeah, and and on um on Awful Flute song, Nick's playing the drums. You can tell it's like live drums. It's like for the last like 30 seconds of that song. Yes. So then just to just to get the narrative, then does the band finish after that album? Is that the end? Did you do a Ziggy Stardust? Well, not really. What happened was that, you know, this is uh, this is what I heard. Allegedly, Jeff had told me, you know, they always had like basically this guy at that was the head of We UK. His name was Max Hall and his name is fitting. And, you know, he apparently, you know, he was the big head of We But Jeff was the boy genius who signed the Jesus Mary Jane, the Smiths, you know what I mean? And so he what Jeff told me, and I and I, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn because it's so long ago now, is that, you know, he just said, Roy, you're fucked. I mean, basically, Max, he will take the 100,000 sales from the Jesus and Mary chain and make it look good for, you know, for his company and for his, you know, ego and what have you. But he never helped the Jesus and Mary chain. He used to complain about that. They would get no help from, you know, Warners, you know what I mean? Considering they, they were the, the, you know, the hottest thing at the time. It's like, remember how they used to always gripe? They don't get on, you know, uh, BBC radio in the daytime. They don't get on television, blah, 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 blah. You know, even though they did, thank God. But uh, yeah. And so basically, you know, he said to me that, you know, Max just basically said, hey, you know, the record's out, the first single didn't hit, nothing's happening, we're not going to invest any more money in this, you know? And so that was that. So I, I, I so I went to America because I was on Warner Brothers and I still made records and still do, but I just make them under different names. But yeah, it's like, that's the thing. Uh, those of of the recorded stuff, of the name The Bammy Slam, there's the Is EP, the, the, the Rough Trade one, that's the compilation of the singles, the John Peel, and there's also a Janice Long session that I'd really like to hear. I remember we did something with the 12 string guitar and just me and Linda, but um, but so far that hasn't surfaced. But that John Peel one only surfaced a couple of months or years ago. I, I hadn't even thought about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, so that was that. that yes. Was, 
And do you keep in touch with the the other three members? I mean, are you occasionally like, do you cross paths in the sort of the world that probably is social media or emails or or is that did that just never happen again? No, all the time. I mean, we we try to find time to Skype, and that's just like even with you know exes and friends it's like well you know uh uh now he's in canada nick's in england i'm either in los angeles or new york or and now i'm in berlin for a bit recording so it's like uh but yeah it's so easy now with like skype and stuff like that but we message all the time that's the one thing that's you know handy about stupid facebook is that it's, it's nice to see you know people criticize the thing if they don't want to see their people's meals i personally love seeing people's food pictures but beyond that it's like uh <laughs> Uh, it's great to see, you know, Linda getting married and like, you know, stories from back in our hometown with Natalie and Nick's funny observations and his things. So we're like, I would say on a, like a weekly basis, we're either commenting or, but, but, but we haven't Skyped for a while. We always say that, let's do that. But we, you know how it is, like I said, with anybody, you just like, so you want to, but then when's the time, even like I was saying, trying to schedule talking to you, you know what I mean? Yes. It's, it's taken so long. It does take a long time. So then, you know, so as you're sort of, you know, then, you know, one thing that sort of really hit me doing this show was that a lot of bands, it was like, you know, you'd have a, like that kind of a musical moment, like you had, say, you know, punk, or you, then you had indie, and then after that, you know, the scene goes, and then there's the dance scene, and then that goes in grunge scene, and then you get Britpop. Did you sort of feel that, you know, when you saw the grunge come along, did you think, oh, crap, we we should be right in there doing that stuff? We we could be there with, you know, My Bloody Valentine and shoegazing bands, or, you know, I just wondered if, if when, you know, like with a few bands I've sort of done... Um, you know, I often thought, oh shit! If we'd sort of, if we'd hung in there a bit longer, we would have probably been quite big on the Britpop period when people sold loads. So I just wondered what your observations were of the music scene, you know, after after the after the band and album. Well, did you read that 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 article that I sent you the link to that Dumbing America? That was more this like explain of the business and well, I have no, I mean, honestly, you know my crazy ego we should have been leading the pack and you know many people said to me it's not the same at all but it's like my the first single bam bam look it up it's like it's like what all those bands were doing but we were doing it a few years earlier of mixing punk and sort of heavier rock and people comment to me often that the bam bam song is the same sort of like model as smells like teen spirit where it's got the uh, uh, riff and then it's got the mellow sort of singing and then it does the screaming in the chorus and it's true now of course that's a much better song and a better riff and you know history has proven that right but it's like uh uh, yeah, I mean, that's thing. That's part of the thing we got offered to open for Jane's Addiction and Living Color, two three-week tours in America when the record came out. And uh, uh, the Max Hole guy was like, well, we're not, the record isn't doing anything in England. And, and then we got, like, I remember I ran to Ian Asprey and I went to the Bunnyman show. He says, when's your record coming out? I was like, came out three weeks ago. I mean, we had no advertisements. We had no, you know, anything, you know, it's like we, we didn't get any support. And then there's a thing, tour support, you know what I mean? Where we, you know, got offered to do these tours, but we need like 20 grand or something to spend six weeks on the road. I mean, six, what? So, yeah, six weeks, three with Living Color and with Jane's Addiction. And, you know, it's like, then the American company, we we asked them and they're like, well, we're not going to spend 20 grand on a British band. You know, we're going to spend that on American Warner signings. You know what I mean? So there's the whole politics of that. That's really the whole thing is it which happens to many people. It's that classic you know, thing of unless you have like the Mary Chain had that incredible music press support and great records too, of course, you know what I mean? But you, you could see they were hyped and people heard about them. You know, uh, we got more attention, which is a real lesson, right? It's like it's you know, got more attention on mute 
than we did on Warner Brothers because Mute, you know, was actually promoting us and, and, and liked the records or who knows what, you know what I mean? But Warner Brothers, like I said, did nothing. They just thought, okay, if the record comes out, if Jeff is right and we got another Mary Chain smash that sells 100,000 records, it looks good for us. But we're not going to help them to do that. You know what I mean? And yes. I realized that whole thing. And in years going by, I've had many like publishing deals like with Sony and major label deals with Universal. And it's like my Sony guy got fired. And then the new guy, Kevin, uh, he comes in and he says to me, frankly, you know, well, look, Roy, I'm not interested in working with fans that Justin signed. I'm looking, you know, that's the, that's the whole thing. You know what I mean? It's like, no, nobody is going to in, in the business. Same thing with when I came to America, this piece of shit A&R guy, you know, the, who shall remain nameless. He, he told me his dad was like, you know, a, a, a big manager and he, he got this job. He hadn't signed anybody for five years, you know, but he told me when I first went that the Warner Brothers America said, okay, here's the A&R guy you deal with and I went in to meet him and he just said right up look at I'll be honest with you I'm not interested in working with your band because I didn't find you and I didn't sign you and if you guys become successful I'm not going to get any credit for it so I'm trying to find my own bands and that was me fucked and finished at Warner's you know what I mean <laughs> what are you going to say to that yes fucked and finished I like that that's a good one so look have you managed then you know since then which is only 30 years ago we're talking about have you, have you managed to sort of make a career in the music industry the creative arts yeah. Music and crime. That's the way you go. That's the that's probably a beautiful combination, actually. <laughs> well, I have a joke. It's like, you know, they always say once, you know, when you're trying to make it, that's the good time. Once you get there, it's kind of ruined. So I just decided to take that advice and stretch it out for 30 years. Yes. OK. So, yeah. So, you, yeah, because I'm often wondering how people cope when they have that musical moment. And then, you know, do they keep? chiseling away and sort of find another area of the creative industry to work in or do they sort of just get a job but you obviously didn't go off and think right I'm going to get an office job now that's it Monday Monday to Friday that's me in the office you're gonna no, well just like everybody else in 30 years I've been to hell and back you know what I mean but it's like at the end of the day I was lucky that I could do everything myself so I could continue to make records and continue to on my own I mean after my Warner Brothers record my next record I made <clears throat> on a, a four-track uh, Tascam 144 cassette that Bruce Springsteen made, you know, Nebraska on, but he was just doing acoustic guitars. And this is where, you know, again, it's like I uh, I switched from drum machines to samplers because I was lazy. And, you know, I could just take a loop and build a song out of that. That's one track, bass, guitar, bounce them down to one, vocal sound effects, four tracks. And that got me a publishing deal with Sony. And then that got me on this label called Red Ant that went bankrupt uh, uh, right before they paid me. So it's like, yeah, it just goes on and on. But I've been really lucky that since I can just make records on my own and I under different names, like, uh, have used lots of stuff in like movies and TV and stuff like that and video games and like jackass DVDs and shit like that. Right. And that has Cause been... that's where the money is now. You know what I mean? I think about like, you know, look at Anton from Jonestown. I mean, he, he, he is blessed to have had that boardwalk empire, you know, a, a straight up and down song in there. That's, that's a game changer now. Cause you're not selling records. So you have that. I don't know what you get paid on something like that playing, you know, the opening every week. And then it's like syndicated all around the world. I have no idea how much you make from that, but a lot more than selling vinyl, I'd imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And have you ever sort of been tempted to sort of write your book on, on sort of, cause you've got a very colorful life here. Well, thanks. It's a thing. It's like, the, you know, I mean, but that doesn't pay the bills, right? It's like, but yeah, that's why I've thought of that. And people have talked to me about that. This, this, this filmmaker in Berlin, 
who made a documentary about Berlin was talking about that. And uh, yeah, and I thought about like making like a feature film about that time in the 80s squatting, you know, because I feel like I was like the observer just just watching like this is something we forgot to talk about that that jump so after ron rom did you know uh uh the um hold on for a second i just got to get a drink you can pause it or just reflect i'll reflect that's fine get a drink that sounds yes But to jump around here, actually, uh, that's the thing. If I wrote a book about it, it would be a novel because, you know, what is an autobiography from a non-famous person? You know, it's like no one no one's heard of us. So, I, I, you know, unless I call my autobiography, you know, story of a guy from a band you never heard of. Uh, it's like, but, you know, it's the same thing. But, yes. um, yeah, so when, when we got the band together, Ron Ron did this review and then we played at this pub right across the street from uh, our, our squad. And it was a great gig. And the landlord pulled the thing because we were so loud and stuff. And we were wild. Like, that's the thing. The live thing didn't sound like the records, but that's the thing. We were all drunk and crazy and stoned and stuff. And we we were, like, really out of control. I mean, it, it's it's amazing to me. that so like I could see what Ron Rom said. And so that happened. But then this is where the little magic of destiny, when Bob Dylan talks about that in his book. But, you know, my destiny went nowhere. But, uh, uh I had heard World Domination Enterprises on John Peel. And I was like, wow, that, that you know, is a fucking sound that I want to be part of. Like the Mary Chan, I remember when I first heard it, I was like, wow, this is a game changer. And that first album still is, nobody sounds like that. Nobody sounds like World Dom. Have you talked to them? No, not yet. Oh, you should. And so this is the magic, though. And I'll try to make it short. It's like I went to the Dave from the Levelers, he had the single, it had an address on it, just like the Nick Smash from Live from London. I went, knocked on World Domination's door, and they told me the backstory from what they, I just remember going, hi, I'm Ryan from Canada, I want to do this gig uh, in a squat in Camberwell, and they said, come on in. So they told me later, after we were friends and we were on Producting Together, they just thought I was this crazy guy because I'm like really hyper. They thought I was on speed and drugs when I wasn't. This is just the regular me. So they said they just thought I was totally crazy. But this is how it all actually happened, David. And this is like, it's so cinematic. I decided I would squat the old Dickie Dirt's building in Camberwell. And that was the Camberwell Odeon where the Beatles and the Stones and, you know, Little Richard and fucking Chuck Berry, everybody played. And it was an empty Dickie Dirt's. So I thought, well, if we could squat our place where we live, I rented a generator and, I, and this is where I realized the power of flyers is nothing because we did like a thousand flyers at like an Echo Bunyan show and a thousand flyers at, at uh, a Ramon show and only 60 people came. But we squatted this entire Camberwell Odeon, like the Hammersmith Odeon size and had like candles like coming into the main building, which all the floors were just like empty. You know what I mean? It was just like uh, we, had, we spent two days carting the dirt out of this one place in the floor. And we had a generator and we had like a little PA that we rented and we put on this gig and World Domination Enterprise. I asked them if they would, you know, be the headliner because we were nobody. And of course, nobody came. But uh, Rob Collins from Product Inc., the mute subsidiary that us and like, I think, the Swans and, and, and I can't remember who else was on. 
and and world domination prizes and they, they he rob said wow what is this place you guys are playing and then they, he said who did this and then they said oh this crazy roy guy you should hear his band and then i had a cassette here the cassette the next day he called me and said hey would you like to be on mute and that's you know that's that's almost like a thing though because he heard the CD, I mean, the, the, the demo, which was me and drum machines, and he didn't see us play live. If he hadn't actually seen us play live, but Seymour Stein, like I said, he saw us play live. And he, he said to me, you know, you guys are amazing. You got something special. He goes, but your band can't play. You know, I said, yeah, but, you know, that was the gig that we played with Pop Lead itself at the Gun Club. Yes. Well, that's weird. That's weird. And it's amazing that you were meeting people like Seymour Stein as well, who's who's kind of, I remember, I did an interview with Andrew Bowie and, and he's, you know, one massive, big, big kind of cheese. Yeah, well, after the record was finished and was, everybody really liked it, at Blanco e Negro and at We Are UK as well, I got a lot of support from the people, like the, the, the you know, uh, PR people there were really behind it, but they had no push from upstairs. The, I remember the Barbara Sharon, who she was amazing. She's like a huge PR person now. Her and Moira Kelly have that. Looking at they're the biggest, you know, promotion people, PR people in in Europe, and uh, uh, yeah. Uh, and and when the record was done, I had a choice to be on Warner Brothers or on Sire, and I went and had a breakfast meeting with Seymour, which I won't get into because it is really quite amazing like 20 minutes but it's kind of private and 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 like half an hour but but i just that's another place i made a big mistake you know but it's like you know i don't look back it's like what could you do it's like i just was so fucking stupid because when i was 14 like i I skipped over that or you did i met the ramones and like when i was 14 after meeting them the first time when they came to town next time joey called me at my house it's a whole longer story and then i would hang out with the ramones in toronto every year they were there and joey was such a cool guy you know it was it's like amazing how you know i'm like a 14 year old kid and he wasn't like wasn't in a creepy way him and his girlfriend who then went to be with johnny you know the kkk linda girl well she wasn't kkk but the song kkk you know yeah. took my baby away but um and I, I i really look back on it now and there's reasons why you know people had said to me well you know Seymour, he he has Madonna. So if you look at the time, you know, at the record sales of like the Talking Heads, who just you know had only put a couple out because they were really you know well I guess they 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 were the biggest sort of indie band. But if you look at you know, uh, you know, the, My Lemon Drops, Echo and the Bunnymen, the Smiths, they weren't going beyond playing you know at that time you know thousand seat halls. You know what I mean? Playing like you know not even the Brixton Academy sort of thing. Yes. So, you know, people, you know, I, I, I really should listen to my heart. I should have at that meeting, Seymour said, you know, yeah, I love the record. But he said, you know, your band can't play, but you guys got something I'd love to put out in America. I know you got an offer from Warner Brothers. You know what I mean? Like, it's like it was on Blanco, you know, we are UK. And then it's got to come out on some Warner subsidiary in America. And I made the mistake of choosing Warner Brothers as opposed to Seymour because we had a, like a sort of relationship. And I was so stupid. It's like, you know. I, I wish Jeff had said to me or someone had said, you know, look, Roy, you got the you know, invitation to be on Warner Brothers from some dickhead product manager who really doesn't give a shit from Warner Brothers. Or you actually had breakfast with Seymour Stein and you guys really hit it off and he would have been in my corner and probably, you know, would have given me the opportunity like, you know, most bands. I always say that exactly in the old days, right? Look at Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, you know, The Clash. It's like. It goes on and on. It takes three records to get going to people hear of you. REM, you know what I mean? It's like it takes three albums. To, but people sort of start hearing of the band. Even if you don't have it, if you keep putting a good product out, 
you know, if you put three albums out, people start to hear about the band just because patterns. So I've heard of those guys, but you know, who could do it on one record unless you get fucking, you know, I mean, I always say I, I, I had a manager that I stopped working with because of this. He kept trying to tell me how, you know, Nirvana, they did all this road work. That's why they were big. And I said, bullshit. Cause I actually like that first record better than Nevermind. And you know, that should have been selling 10 million records, but it wasn't, you know why? Cause it was on sub pop. It wasn't on MTV, uh, you know, getting maximum rotation, uh, like smells like teen spirit you know what i mean yes well i i, I agree i thought bleach i i thought bleach was a much better album and too, um, it's not us being snobby rock fans i really want people to understand this. when i'm talking i'm just a crazy motherfucker but it's like i'm not being pretentious i just i i know what i like and i always say that to people it's like falling in love you know what it's like when, when you feel music you like it just hits you i don't have to think about it or think it you know i was one of those people i always when i was growing up like your time you know it's like man i like fleetwood mac and I liked fucking, you know, I liked, uh, 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 oh, God, man, I think about it. It's like just a, 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 you know, from the Pistols to fucking Black Sabbath to, you know, every kind of music to fucking Fila Kuti to James Brown. I always listen to all kinds of music, country music, this kind of music, that kind of music. So, yeah, I think we're going there, man. Yes, well, absolutely. But it is kind of interesting because I think, um, I mean, there's, there's the, you know, the one exception was the Sex Pistols did Nevermind Bollocks, which obviously was it and that was perfect. But most bands, I remember the first Smith album was really disappointing. And then they did the John Peel session and, you know, Kid Jensen and put out the album Hatful of Hollow, which was brilliant. And then after that, they, they got a better producer and the sound developed. And by their last album, you know, they were sounding amazing. And But I think, again, you know, and you mentioned REM, it did take a few albums for them to sort of get going so to speak because because i suppose you know people are developing their craft you know and um... no it's not that it's not that david that's what i said i don't want to sound like such a dick but it's it's the business i've studied it for years and i find it fascinating it's like those guys were an irs and irs it's the mafia the record labels you know it really is the mafia think about it it's like they you know uh uh, and I mean, it really used to be the mafia. Now it's the same. It's just a, it's a bigger corporate mafia. But they, you know, they were on IRS and you could not be from fucking the first album. You could not get Rolling Stone gave them the sort of album of the year from their first album. R.E.M. were the biggest press starlings that you could ever imagine, you know, and then their second record had I'm sorry, you know, whatever South Central Rain. And, you know, that's still, you know, to, to, to R.E.M. fans, it's an amazing song, but it's not going to be a big radio. It's not a normal sort of thing. And then they had The One I Love, which really was as close as you could get. I mean, it, that was so, and but that was the third album. And by that time, uh, they, you know, had The One I Love, but it still didn't get that push. And then you look as soon as they were on Warner Brothers and that green record came out, I think that was the first one, suddenly shitty songs like Stand in the Place and all these, I forget what was on that first album, but, you know, suddenly they had, you know, big radio MTV hits because they were on Warner Brothers, but it started on that third album with the one I love. I think that's it. I think that's yes, it. that's probably true. But then the, 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 you remember that particular Four period, because we all remember the angsty minute with, the moment with Sonic Youth who were on SS. STT records or SST records and when they signed Warner everybody like had an existential meltdown because it's like god you know this band can't sign to a major they've just sold out they're crap but then you're like oh no but this album's much better than any of the previous ones so it was a bit of a tricky one wasn't it for us music fans well not me I'm, I never thought of shit like that to me I honestly like they're nice people but I never I never liked Sonic Youth's music at all I uh, like I wrote this joke last night actually talking to this guy at this bar I was like you know what you know what the Pixies and uh, Sonic Youth have in common? 
I both like them better when Kim sings. <laughs> so uh, I wasn't a big fan of them. And, you know, I, I, I didn't, I never thought about stuff like that, you know, about the whole, that's a British sort of, you know, music press thing about betting, being on a major label, blah, blah, blah. But more than that, I think that you know why they, they got on Geffen. They got on Geffen as a thank you for them getting Nirvana onto Geffen. This is true. This is yeah. very true, yes. Because, yes, the sub-pop world. Because that, that was when I saw uh, Nirvana. They were supporting Tad and they were doing it all, but they were both on sub-pop. And John Peel played an album. It was a compilation called Sub-Pop 100 and then he did a one Sub-Pop 200 and there was like just a really good collection of kind of those kind of early, I suppose, grunge songs, really. Well, again, you see, it's like it's like the thing that, you know, makes us different and maybe is, you know, maybe makes us suck because there's no soul is that we were a drum machine band. And at that time, there was like very few of us. There was, you know, Depeche Mode, totally different style of music, Ministry, who used a live drummer, but that was pretty much out in the studio. And, you know, the Sisters of Mercy that had the drum machine, Dr. Avalanche or whatever. It's like, you know, there wasn't a lot of bands doing that. And uh, that that's, makes it a whole different thing. It's a whole different ballgame when it doesn't matter what version of Nirvana uh, uh, it is. You know, there's a difference between a band going in there and playing a song, whether it's Soundgarden or Oasis, like you said earlier. It's a totally different thing when every, every like that Amadeus movie like with, with, with my record, with Drum Machine, like every note is everything is put there on purpose it's like you know what i mean there's those magic accidents i've recorded since with a live band i made one record with my live band in la in like four hours we recorded the album twice because we just blasted through and i think of how much easier it is but i mean it's the difference between making that's the thing people don't get really the songs they hear what they hear and you know people are impressed <clears throat> by <clears throat> massive attack and tricky and stuff because it sounds great it's production it's those drums it's a different thing than you know playing rock and roll i, I mean i just saw this annie lennox interview like <clears throat> i mean what i have wanted to be or done or i would have tried to do that but it wasn't my type of music to do which i do love like sweet dreams and this or here comes the rain but you know they have got a song that lasts forever that sweet dreams every every time every night i'm out at some place i hear that Yes, I mean it is there. So when you were sort of a young a young chap growing up, were you into bands like or artists like Burt Backrack and the Carpenters and and that kind of pure pop sound with melancholic yes. lyrics? Yes, as I tried to say earlier, I was a studier of music from like before I was like I can't even remember when. I remember like when I first that's an interesting thing. When I first heard my mum's had seven records, Johnny Cash and that song Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, and like we said, Fats Domino. And I remember before I was ten going, Oh, okay, that's the and again, we didn't see stuff on TV. Now the YouTube stuff, you never saw the Beatles move. You looked at their record covers unless you went and saw Hard Day's Night. You know what I mean? It's like you didn't see them. We used to see pictures of the bands in Rolling Stone or Circus Magazine or Cream, you know? And it's like, mm. oh, I forget what we were talking about. About Oh, yeah, that, that perfect pop. Yeah, man. 
I, I love that, the, the Beach Boys. And even, you know, did you see that documentary on the Wrecking Crew? You yes. Know, the, you know, all that played, you know, that's why I realize now, Sonny and Cher, and here's one of my favorites, the Partridge Family. Whenever I DJ, I play I Can Hear Your Heartbeat with that wah-wah part. That song's amazing because it's got the fucking best musicians in the world. And I wrote that joke. It's like, wow, I realized that I was always listening to my favorite band because it was the same band on the Beach Boys. <laughs> it was the same band on the Partridge Family. It was the same band on Sonny and Cher and Phil Specter, it's like you know and you can really tell it's like that's what drew me to it that sound so yeah absolutely yes well that's that's amazing and and i, I don't know if you you know because i'm one of those people people who's obsessed with my i suppose in, in the in the uk on bbc4 on a friday night they often have a rock documentary and i don't know you must kind of consume all those ones that that come out, you know, on on different bands or different artists and people like Danny Fields who did that, you know, he discovered, I suppose, managed the the Ramones, but also he'd worked with, e, you know, Jim Morrison and also Ian. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I. The thing I've been, my, my, my zealot life, I didn't want to cut you off, but yeah, I watched that documentary. I met Danny Fields one time at a, a photo thing of maybe Mick Rock or something in Los Angeles and just had the most amazing conversation with him. I don't know if he's hitting on me or not. He probably wasn't. You're very subtle, but uh, he, he was really fucking super sweet and super smart and funny and all the things that he is in the documentary and it, it still is now. Yes, that was one of my favourite documentaries. I'd, I'd never come across much of him before, but he was like, God, what a cool dude. Yeah, well, it's great. Uh, it's great when you hear Lou on his uh, documentary trashing. Uh, there's a tape conversation of him trashing the Ramones. And then there's another tape conversation. I forget. I think maybe I don't know if it's Lenny Kay or someone where uh, Lou is admitting, no, the Ramones, come on, they're everything you want to be. They just they fucking come on two minute songs, great words. Wow, they are amazing. So there's two interviews I've heard in different documentaries where Lou's in one trashing the Ramones and the other saying they're the fucking most amazing thing and sort of admitting it. Yes. I know it's a curious world, but you must feel. Are you do you feel like one of the great rock and roll survivors? You know, in in this world, because I mean, I know you know it's it's kind of amazing that you've been making music and for three thirty years, three decades, and and sort of have still managing to do it. Well, that's that's an interesting thing. I have a song about it, which. I wouldn't tell you the title, but it's like, I have a song about that. And what I realized, I was a kid from Canada. I never, I didn't think about being an artist. I didn't know artists growing up. I never, you know, knew any people that were involved in the arts. Like I said, my parents weren't like that really. And it, it's really amazing how when I got to that squat, oh my God, suddenly I had like friends that I've had for my whole life now. And they're my real family. Like when I met these people, these amazing artists, everybody in there, you know, all different sexualities and all people, different people doing different kinds of art. I remember we had these people, Papa and Christine, these like real vegan squatter people. And they had a sweat lodge in their backyard. And when we lived in those squats, I lived there for four years. Oh yeah, I, I have this joke. It's like I lived there for four years in a squat where we stole the electricity because we had to. You couldn't legally hook it up, and we got arrested for that one time. But that's another story. And we had no hot water. Like we only had cold water for four years, and we had no bathtub or shower. And we had to take a like the the, the bathroom was built onto the house after our. I think our squats were built in 1780. And yeah, that, that even story is amazing that they were there and they were knocked down after World War II to make that big Burgess Park and those, you know, Aphex twin monstrosity fucking tower blocks, right? 
and they ran out of money in the 70s to knock down. So just our seven buildings in the shape of an L were left at the end of the lake. It was really magical. But, uh, um, yeah. Yes, I, I must admit, my ears pricked up when you mentioned Sweat Lodge because um, I went through a phase of, you know, hanging out with hippies and new age people and Sweat Lodges were quite the thing during about five years of my life, crawling into little sort of damp places with hot stones. Well, and I did it once and I'm OCD and it's like then I had to go over to my friend Pete Demetrio as the local hash dealer. Oh, yeah, but this is what I started to say back to your point that I didn't think I was an artist. I just thought I was just like a hustling kid and I thought, well, I could couldn't do you know like i said mick jagger fucking Jimi hendrix but i could do the violent femmes or rem you know and the violent femmes another band that 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 first album's amazing and uh and so but then i realized with no pats on my back no critical acclaim and no big financial gains i still continued to have a band to this very day continued to keep on making records but like that's the thing i cannot seem to get them out like i started to say it's like when i was in sony my guy got fired, then Red Hat went bankrupt, then my former manager fucked up my universal thing. It just, it's like, it's like I did something really bad in another life and, you know, the universe will not let me get a record out. <laughs> yeah, so, so have you managed to, it doesn't sound like it, archive any of your material? I mean, have you managed to archive your more recent material? Yeah, that's, uh, but the thing is, I owed the mute recordings and I will say something allegedly. I had a really bad experience but I think with these these the the cherry red guys, they contacted me about you know getting my publishing for ten years, and they I I've talked to other bands and they've done the same thing, and this is this is you know allegedly what happens uh, you know they you know then I said to them okay well I know that I never it's not a lot of money but there was some royalties paid for the John Peel shows you know what I mean da, 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 and I never got those at all and nobody did it's like I own my publishing so it's like I never even thought to go look and ask you know so then they did this and I thought that that was their plan they go you know to all the bands that you're interviewing you know and if they don't have publishing deals get their publishing and just go to like there's a thing like in America BMI and ASCAP and there's one in England too where all the radio royalties they're kept there they don't go away until someone claims them you know so i think they just went around and you know asked uh, uh and got the money and i asked them like six months later and they said no we didn't find any royalties back to it and i said well that's bullshit because even if it was like 12 cents or 12 euros you know what i mean there would have been something because i've never collected on we got played on the radio and mtv europe and shit like that you know and then they wanted to put out a song on their c86 compilation and i declined and it's like, maybe that's stupid of me, but it's like, I, I thought, no, I don't want to be involved with these guys, you know? And, uh, but yeah, so I've got, I own apparently the masters to the uh, product ink stuff. Um, that's what Mute told me. And then I called the Polydor, got bought by Mute and sold back. Anyway, I own it, but I don't know where the masters are. You know what I mean? So if I was going to do something with it, I'd have to use the vinyl, which sounds shitty as it is. You know what I mean? I'd have to use the vinyl to like make copies that's you know i don't know where the because back then it was on these weird beta tapes and there's half inches around but that's the thing i called mute no one knows where the two inches are you know no one knows where the fucking quarter masters or whatever i don't know where that is you know and warner brothers has the warner brothers record so i can't do anything about that god that must piss you off mm, no but then i got like i thought about this about talking to you it's like i i, I like i well, I will say, because now you you can see, unless if someone rips it off, I have this song called I'm the Van Gogh of Rock and Roll. 
just because I didn't sell any paintings doesn't mean I'm not a fucking genius. It's kind of a joke, but you know, it's like, yeah, it's like, I, I, I have five albums, you know? So it's, it's like, you know, the first really most bands, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, you know, the first four records is all you need after that, you know? Yes. Blimey. That's amazing. So, because with a lot of people I've interviewed, they often get a £60 royalty check a year, but I gather you probably haven't had anything. Never, not one. Jesus. Yeah. But it, 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 it's, it's, you know, like I said, I mean, to me now, at this age, as Andy says, it's really the work, the work, the work. That's all that really matters, you know? So it's like, I'm writing songs daily and that's a funny thing I feel like I'm so much better at my craft now than I was when I was I didn't even know how to write a song back then you know what I mean yes but when you wrote that classic song that I went and bought don't it make you feel did you see I hate that song that was just I did that I like the bamp bamp one and then the stuff on the album I looked at the singles I was foolish I was really stupid about this really I looked at the singles as something to sort of, you know, get your name out there. And then I saved all my good songs for the album. Stupid, you know, but people, I, I can't stand that song. When it goes that, don't it make you fan? It just hits a bad note to me. But I like the song. I remember I wrote that about taking LSD and being on, on Frenchman's Bay with my friend uh, in Canada by the nuclear plant and the ice cracking below our feet, you know, it cracks and it's it's dark out. It's scary as fuck. Yes. Well, I imagine. So what would, what would you say to your a younger self that was starting out in this kind of interesting world that you think, oh, that would be a really good thing to have known? I already told you. It's only two things. I should have just stayed on mute, put out that first record as it was. Daniel was right. He said, Roy, sounds great. Put that out and whatever you think you want to change on it, put that into your next record. That's the one thing I learned, the best advice ever, you know. Don't get caught up on a hi-hat, you know. Some people want the hi-hat lower. Some people want it louder. Same thing, you know what I mean? It's like it's really if the song's there and there's something, some sort of feeling there. You know, that's the whole thing. The song, it's an idea, isn't it? You know what I mean? Is it I don't want to hang around with you or let's spend the night here, you know, whatever yes. Be. It's it's that's the idea, and then the verses you fill out the idea with a bunch of bullshit, you know, but uh, it's the idea, and so now, like I said, I'm I keep making stuff, and there's that frustration in 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 for me. I used all this old school equipment, and so now I have a Mac, and it's so shameful. I've had it for three years with with Logic and Ableton, and I have not in three years opened up either of those programs and tried to learn them. It's pathetic. <laughs> Yes. But then you say, you know, you're writing every day. So you must be feeling like still you have that urge to, to you know, do that perfect record. Well, no, that's what I was starting to say without being pretentious. I was like a little hustler kid. I never thought of myself as an artist, but I realized after... 30 years of continually to write songs and I also made like an indie movie like a really cheap dogma film I've written five feature scripts and I had like a big Hollywood agent that went nowhere but uh it's like so you know I realize with no incentive from anybody like I said I'm not critically acclaimed no one's waiting for my next record you know what I mean or project but I you know just write songs all the time and as Neil Young says when it just pops into my head I'm walking down the street it pops into my head then I just have to pull up my little tape recorder you know and and put down the song you know and then it's like those are little charcoal drawings and if you make a demo it's like a watercolor and then out of the hundreds of songs you pick like 10 and then you make oil paintings of them yes blimey so are we going to hear any of these recordings yeah but you won't know it's from me because it'll be under a different name like I definitely I I I 
I, you know, it's a really demented thing. I never wanted to use the Bambi Slam after I thought, I thought, well, any success that we have, then those fuckers at Warner Brothers, they're going to sell back catalog and it's just going to make them money. So I was like, why even bother? You know what I mean? Yes. So My who, bitterness knows no bounds. <laughs> so, so who do you recall? I mean, it's quite tricky here. So who do you, who do you, well, who are you called now to release them? I have a bunch of different things. Depends on what kind of thing. Because, like, I do all kinds of music. I do folky kind of really, no more like, you know, Mazzy Star, Mojave 3 kind of mellowy stuff. Mm-hmm. And I do sort of, like, crazy, like, loop garage techno punk. And then, like, it depends. on Like I said, then I, I made a record with just this drummer, just of, like, almost like, not R.E.M., but R.E.M. Birds, Tom Petty kind of songs. You know what I mean? Yes. And so now I've got these five albums. And I have to figure out a way do i want to release them as one thing or do i want to take one song from each record and have each of the five records sound like every song totally different because they're from five different records but you know it's like that's that's a funny thing a lot of my friends have this we can make the product but you know no none of us that make the product are we're not booking agents or managers or record labels or pr firms you know and it's like i'm not getting my shit on epstein you know Bandcamp. i love when people say YouTube, YouTube's just like everything else. It's like people got to hear about your product. At the end of the day, I realized when I was young, it's all about PR. People have to hear about your product. <laughs> you know, if they don't hear about the most amazing record ever, what good does it do? But if they get hyped and, you know, hear about a bunch of shit, that's all that really matters is what you hear about. You can't hear something that, you know, you don't know about. Yeah. God damn. It's a tricky world. It's a tricky world. Well, look, Roy, look, this has been amazing. And, you know, I can't believe, because every time I get a message and you'd be like, oh, God, you've gone again. Oh, you're back again. Oh, shit, I'm just back. No, you've gone. So um, I'm amazed that we managed to coordinate this. No, I am too, and I feel bad. Like I said, it's just the schedule. Like, now it's almost one, and i just got to go out and do stuff. (laughs) Because it's like in Berlin, like, I, like I said, it's like breakfast time here, even though it's midnight. I don't mean like the time difference is that, you know, it's like if you go to bed at six or eight o'clock in the morning, then your whole schedule is whacked the other way. Yes. Well, I, I remember I've got very fond memories of Berlin. I sort of went there just before the wall came down and a bit after. And uh, it it was kind of a, quite an extraordinary place. I always remember we were staying with a friend's brother and we were like going out. We were young. And, they, and he said, don't worry, you won't get beaten up in Berlin. This was before the wall. He, you know, it's like... But we could get beaten up in Norwich, but you know, and it was true. We wouldn't have got beaten up at all, and it was. Um, it felt really safe at night. But I don't know what it's like now. No, that's the thing. I mean, it's still, you know, I mean, it, but it is safe. It's like you know, people still get, you know, my 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 trans friends and you know, uh, uh, women stuff. Still, you know, you feel, you know, scared, but still, it's so safe compared to America or like England. It's like, yeah. And it's a, it's a fucking Berlin's a different sort of whole thing. You know, people always say, I say, wow, I really love Germany. They say, no, you don't love Germany. You love Berlin. It's like a whole different. And it's like, you know, there's a, 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 like, it's a small world. Like it is in England and in LA or New York. It's a small, you know, family, a small circle. If you're into the Rockabilly scene, or if you're into the, you know, Jonestown sort of psych rock scene, or if you're into the fucking heavy metal scene, or if you're into the burlesque scene, or if you're into the BDMS scene, it's a really small world and all of them converge. And, you know, when all of your friends work at bars or performers and stuff like that, and it's like, oh, it's a Wednesday night, but my friends had this party at Kit Kat and it's my friend Jay's birthday party. So it's like, I'll get there like two and, you know, 
will be there until eight or ten, and it's like your your day's fucked. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like you know David Bowyer. You pop said that's really true. That's the way it is in Berlin. You party for three days, then you recuperate for three days, and then you got two days to get some work done. <laughs> Cheesy, crazy. It's a crazy world. But look, this is amazing. I'm so pleased. And and you know, I was one of those people who bought that single that I know you didn't like, but I, you know, it it caught my ear and attention. Well, check out the Bamp Bamp one when you get off the phone. I will. Because, I w- because that that I. Uh, I love that. It's like, I wish that that had been, you know, people, I don't know why that, that second single, but I wish that that came out as like a single in America, you know what I mean? And that was doing the like 120 minute shit. And that is the um, last bit. Well, that's the only bit of the interview that I had with Roy, indeed, from the Bambi Slam. I know it was quite a dramatic pause there. I might have to redo that again or not. Yeah, I don't know. Yes, anyway, that was Rory Feldon from the Bambi Slam, vocalist and guitarist and much, much more. Talking about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. Not all the time, but, you know, most of the time. And uh, keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Just go and see a therapist. And also, all these shows have been archived and podcast. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, which is my favourite, and also Mixcloud, which used to be my favourite. Anyway, I'll leave you with, yes, the Bambi Slams, John Peel session, recorded on the 1st of March, 1987. This is it. It might just blow your mind. It should do, if you like music. Anyway, have a great week.
Yeah.